the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it. With the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned to me their back. And not their face, and though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath, and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and the places around, about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah and the cities of the hill country and the cities of Shephelah. And in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. End our reading there from God's word. Jeremiah was suffering. He himself was in prison, persecuted for preaching the truth. His city was under attack, a judgment from God for their sins. The army of Babylon had surrounded Jerusalem. Remember, that's our scene. And in that moment, God instructed Jeremiah to buy a field. So he did. But then Jeremiah questioned God. We studied it last week, his prayer. Basically asking, are you sure it was a good idea for me to buy a field in enemy-occupied territory? Basically doubting God's power to bring good to that field, that land, this city, after it's all been destroyed. Jeremiah is not the only one who has questioned God while suffering. 
The ancient believer Job questioned God while suffering, and God replied with questions of his own. Similarly, in our study today, consider how God answered Jeremiah with a question of his own. Verse 27, is anything too hard for me? It's not too hard for God to ask Job questions when Job questioned God, questions that silenced Job and everyone else. It's not too hard for God to ask questions of Jeremiah, to question Jeremiah until he's silenced and worshipful. It's not too hard for God to silence every objection and shut every mouth. But God can do more than that. God can do better than that. Brings us to our main point. God can do anything, including giving his people a heart to return to him. Remember the Old Testament Sarah? She questioned God. She was 90 years old. God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a son, and Sarah burst out laughing. But in Genesis 18, 14, notice what God asked Sarah. Quote, is anything too hard for the Lord? End quote. Genesis 18, 14. The answer, of course, is no. God enabled that 90-year-old woman to conceive and to give birth to the son of the promise. Here, Jeremiah questioned God, just like Sarah had done. Jeremiah was doubting whether God could actually make good on his promise to have that field become a good investment. Just like Sarah was doubting whether God could actually come through on his promise to give her a son and to give hope to God's people. It brings us to our first point. Despite the people's sin that must be punished, God can reverse it. Verses 26 through 29 are basically God beginning to answer Jeremiah's question, confirming, yes, Jerusalem would fall. Yes, the enemy would burn the city. Verses 30 and 31, the reason was, is anyone in doubt what the reason was? We've been being told for decades from Jeremiah and Many chapters from Jeremiah, it's the reason of sin, punishment for sin from the time that the city was built, we're told. It was a scene of so many evil practices that God must destroy it. In verses 32 to 33, the whole nation was involved in the sin, from the kings to the priests to the residents. The God of the covenant had been ignored, had been rejected, despite the Lord God's persistent attempts to instruct them differently through Jeremiah and others. Verses 34 and 35, they had given their allegiance to false gods, Baal and Molech. They set up loathsome idols. Where? In the very precincts of the temple of the Lord. And if you're not disgusted yet, they even sacrificed their own sons and daughters to the false gods. The children whom God had given them. Covenant children. Verse 36 is a surprise reversal generated by God in his power. What we had just read, verses 26 through 35, seems like a Loctite case for why God would destroy. And look at verse 36. Look especially at the first two words. Now, therefore. It seems like God is going to conclude, because of all these things that the people did wrong, that It's the end. It's destruction. It's exile. But then, as you caught when I was reading, verses 28 through 35 take on a completely different tone. They're about 
uh, verses 28 and 35 are about God judging sin by destroying the city and sending them into exile. But then verses 36 to 34 are about God gathering his sinners back after exile and restoring them and blessing them. How is that a now therefore? Do you catch what's happening? Let me say it a different way so you make sure not to miss verse 36's transition. You're despicable sinners. I need to destroy you. Therefore, I'm never going to stop doing good to you. How is that a therefore? It doesn't follow. That's not a natural, logical sequence. What? It's a surprise reversal couched in a therefore. How can people who sacrifice their own children to false gods become the Lord's people again? You might say that's impossible. Wait, is anything too hard for God? Which is how he started his answer here to Jeremiah. Nothing is too hard for God. All right, let's test that. Take sinners who deserve damnation this bad and give them everlasting covenant love. Do that, O God, and we'll believe that you could do anything. And God can. And God does. But at what cost? God would, as you know how this unfolds, the prophecy of Jeremiah points ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he would need to come, and he would need to die on the cross for those sins in order for God to adopt rebellious, reprehensible people as his own sons and daughters again. That makes us reach our second point. Despite the people who were being, being banished, God can gather his people again, verses 37 to 41. We start with verse 37. It tells us more about God's intentions to rescue and about his power to rescue. Even after his people have been attacked, dragged away to a foreign city, kept in exile for seven decades, God would be able at that point to bring his people back home again. Verse 38, we find language of the renewal of a covenant. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Boy, does that ever sound refreshing. Notice when the covenant would be renewed in this language. When is that again? After the 70 years of exile. After God would bring his people back from exile, God is talking sweetly to them again. But these were the people who were the vile sinners. Didn't it disgust you as we read it, and again as I draw our attention to it, that they sacrifice their own sons and daughters to the false gods? These were the vile sinners. How could they reach a point of calling God their God again? They had rejected him. They had gone after false gods to a great extent, literally to personal sacrifice. In verse 39, God answered by declaring, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Yes, for the good of their children after them. They won't be killed. In place of the heart rejection of the parents of God, God will cause them to fear God forever. It's a new gift described here as heart-level reverence for God. Not just external. Not just following the rules on the outside 
but fearing God is what he says. I will give them one heart and one way. And the wonderful results? Personal and multi-generational good. The good of them and for their children after them. And God's intention is stated in verse 40 to make an everlasting covenant with them. When we heard the covenant described in the famous verses of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the only thing missing was the word everlasting, and it's supplied here. An everlasting covenant with them. Verse 41 ends with a very comforting thought. Not only is God able to restore his people, but God will rejoice in doing so. God himself will rejoice in doing good to the people who had done such wrong. God's actions of restoring his people were done with, listen to the language here in verse 41, with all God's heart and with all God's soul. This is the only place in the Bible that talks about God in this way. With all of God's heart and all of God's soul, he will rejoice in restoring his covenant people after our waywardness. These are expressions of God's pleasure in redeeming, God's joy in restoring his people. So that was point two. Despite the people being banished, God can gather his people again. And now we move to our third point. As certainly as God brought disaster, God can bring good. These final three verses are a recap. They're really restating in a short version, what we already had in the previous verses. And now, in these last three verses, we're back on the topic of that field. The field that's been our topic through the whole of chapter 32, the field that Jeremiah had purchased, we're back on that topic. So verse 42, the comparison is made between God's ability to destroy and God's ability to restore. To destroy and restore the people. To destroy and restore the city. To destroy and restore, yes, that field. Jeremiah, verse 43, God directly answers Jeremiah's question once and for all, but whether it was a good investment for him to buy that field, answer is yes. In the future, God says to him, fields will be bought, fields will be planted, fields will be harvested in a land that, yes, is about to be destroyed. Is there anything too hard for me, God says? Again, as it were, to Jeremiah here in this verse. And then our last verse, verse 44. One day in the future, Jeremiah, can you see it? One day, because of my power, says God, all normal real estate sales and documents and services will be restored over the whole range of all the land. Let me list it for you. And that's why verse 44 has all the real estate names. Restoration is in view. Restoration that's spiritual in nature is expressed in geographic terms because the topic is a field in a certain geographic location. God can talk geography, and he can talk spiritual restoration in terms of geography. He can talk spiritual restoration in terms of money. He can talk spiritual restoration in terms of the life, blood of people. It completes our study through the verses, so let's now look at how this passage about God's power and his spiritual blessings of restoration and how God taught Jeremiah to buy a field, Jeremiah prayed about a field, and God answered his prayer, how it all gets fulfilled and how it all makes sense at the cross of Christ. 
If God were to punish the sins of his people by placing those sins on Jesus, let's say, and then God were to destroy Jesus on a cross unto death, having his lifeless body buried in a certain place of real estate, a geographic spot, would God then be able to do anything good for his people afterwards? Come back to our question. Is there anything too difficult for God? The answer is no, nothing too difficult for God. The answer to this question is yes, God could bring good to his people after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the punishment of the exile points to the punishment of the cross. Punishment of the exile for sins, punishment of the cross for sins. The restoration from exile points to the resurrection of Christ and the good life of the people of God following his resurrection. It was unthinkable that God's people would be driven from God's city and that God would let his temple be destroyed and that Jeremiah's field would be ruined. It was unthinkable. They had a hard time wrapping their mind around that as part of what led to their sin. God would never do that. We're the special people. We're the chosen race. They had a hard time believing that God would let that happen to his own city and his own people. But God did drive his people out. God did destroy his city. God did allow his temple to be destroyed. And similarly, it was unthinkable that God would command his Messiah to come into this world, take on human flesh, take on the capacity to die, and then be called to actually go and do it. It's unthinkable. Who would come up with that? That is what Peter was objecting to. We have to save the Messiah. God save the Messiah. God save the king. God save is the notion of people following this king. But after God put our reprehensible sins onto Jesus Christ, he did exactly that. He died on that cross. And it says as loud as anything ever said, God can do anything including putting all of our sins on one perfect person in order to cleanse us. It was unthinkable that God could raise someone from the dead. That's what the Sadducees objected to. That can't happen. But since Jesus Christ was innocent and death could not keep a hold on him, Jesus did rise from the dead, again shouting, God can do anything, and God fulfilled the promises of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 32, through the works of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You get the theme? God always does what God promised in the Scriptures that he would do. And instead of being yet another king or yet another priest who sinned, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness at every moment, undergoing the baptism of repentance even, therefore offering, as it were, repenting on behalf of the people, the one who's innocent, repenting on behalf of the ones who are not. Matthew 3.15, when John the Baptist objected to that, I don't baptize you, you baptize me. And Jesus corrected him received the water of baptism and said, let it be so now. For this, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.15. Jesus experienced a exile-like suffering on the cross alone 
and during that moment, he obediently turned to God with all of his heart and trusted in God. And since his resurrection and sending a spirit, now Christ turns us toward God by circumcising our hearts and giving us the ability to repent. He would not stop trusting God, and then he was forsaken by God the Father. And we won't trust God, though he'll never forsake us. There's a chasm between us and Christ. A chasm between the sinner and the righteous one. We used to be like the people in Jeremiah's day. Incapable of hearing, incapable of repenting, but God took care of that. Acts 2.36, God sent his servant, quote, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What God promised here in Jeremiah 32 is that he would give hearts that turn to God and fear God forever. Heart-level fear, truly meaning it, genuine, authenticity inside, real Christians, people who've been converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's fulfilled by the Spirit that Christ gave us. Romans 2, 29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, Paul wrote Romans 2, 29. And again, Paul wrote Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3, 3. God will not only do good to his people, but also to their children after them. In the New Covenant, God continues to take the children of believers as God's own children. He continues to do good to the children as he promised. Listen to Acts 2.39. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Acts 2.39. So we've seen our lesson that God can do anything, including giving his people a heart to return to him. We've seen how despite the people's sin and they must be punished, that God can reverse it. We've seen that despite being banished, God can gather his people back together again. And we've seen that as certainly as God brought disaster, he can bring good. And I have two concluding applications for us from our study of this third section of Jeremiah 32. Number one, believe in God's power in your own life. Believe in God's power in your own life. Jeremiah was doubting whether the 17 shekels of silver were well spent. Turns out that in all the history of the world, one of the wisest investments ever was those 17 shekels for that field because it symbolized hope for the exiles during 70 years of exile and suffering. Knowing not only would God bring them back to that field and that land and that city, but God would also uphold them during the exile. Symbolizes heaven for us. Don't you have a place at the table, the great lamb's feast? Don't you have a place, a field, a spot that's been preserved for you and promised to you? Isn't it personalized to you? We have that spot so that after all this, after everything we're going through here, after our exile, Not only will God bring us to heaven, but he'll uphold us now during our time on the way. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God all things are possible. We're called to believe in God's power in our own lives. We need to personalize 
what this God is saying to us in Jeremiah 32. The pastors who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith expounded and explained this truth about God's providence for us, God's care for us, using his power to bless us individually and personally. In chapter 5, section 1, we read earlier, let me read a part of it again. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, his power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, God can do anything, and he's upholding, directing, disposing, and governing your life. Believe that. Believe in God's power in your own life. The promises of God are not just spiritual and future and one day we'll get all these goodies. The promises of God also concern real life right now in a certain geographic location, in a time stamp, in your experience as God's people. God is your creator. He's your sustainer. He's your redeemer. What is God doing in your life? Believe that God's power is doing something in your life. What God has promised, he fulfilled at the cross in the empty tomb. He's brought you blessing by his spirit and his word. Nothing is too difficult for God. Stop doubting that God could help you through this term of school with these teachers, these fellow students, these papers, these quizzes, and these exams. Stop doubting that God could guide you to the right career and the steps to get there. Stop doubting that God has real power to heal your marriage or your other relationships. Stop doubting that God can give you victory over a certain besetting sin or that God could help you in your figuring out retirement. Stop doubting that God could save a family member for whom you've been praying for a long time. And stop doubting that God would ever bless and improve your life and your situation. Believe in God's power in your own life. That's the first application. The second and the last one, believe in God's grace to sinners. You say, what does that have to do with power? It's the power of God's grace to sinners. Believe in God's grace to sinners. One sin that God took the time to point out for special mention in Jeremiah 32 was giving up their own sons and daughters. It's probably what stands out to us. It's grotesque. It's repulsive to us. And so it begins to look like there's no hope for Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem filled with sin, surrounded by the enemy, seeking to destroy them as a judgment from God for that sin. But God is saying there's great hope for restoration right there. It might look to us like there's no hope for a Christian individual or a Christian nation who commits infanticide. But the truth is, What God says here is that there's great hope for restoration in Christ's death and resurrection. It's forgivable through Christ's blood and only through Christ's blood. That individual, that nation must turn their faces back to God and repent and believe and live as his power enables us to live in his grace. God can do anything. God can forgive murderers. God can restore individuals. God can restore a nation with his ethic. God gives grace to new hearts of new people, his new people, Christian people. We all are all about this. We used to be into ourselves, and now we're all about Christ. That's what unites us. We have one heart. 
Fast forward from the Jerusalem we studied in Jeremiah 32 to the same city, Jerusalem, years later. The exiles came home, yes, but fast forward past that. Fast forward again to the time when Jesus Christ himself came into this world and lived and preached there and died there and rose again and spoke there. That's how God gives his grace to sinners. Now fast forward just a little bit more, once more, to the Jerusalem a bit later, at the time when the apostles were spreading the good news of Christ all around the Asia Minor. And they had a church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine? A New Testament church in that same spot. Look at what God tells us about that church in Acts 4.32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Acts 4.32. That's a direct fulfillment of what God promised in our passage in Jeremiah 32.39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Believe in God's grace to sinners. In a world that is torn apart by war, hatred, selfishness. God can do anything to pour out his grace on sinners. So what God does is he brings his people together in churches. And in the church of Jesus Christ on earth. With one heart. All worshiping Christ. All going one way. Living for Christ. In a world that's lonely We have the gift of the fellowship with one another on our journey toward heaven. It's a gracious journey that will never end because it's the grace of the everlasting covenant of God. We believe in God's grace to sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven.